0: Chapter Two, Part One of Adam Bede by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Denham. The Preaching. About a quarter to seven, there was an unusual appearance of excitement in the village of Hayslop, and through the whole length of its little street from the Donnithorne Arms to the churchyard gate, the inhabitants had evidently been drawn out of their houses by something more than the pleasure of lounging in the evening sunshine. The Donnithorne Arms stood at the entrance of the village, and a small farmyard and stackyard which flanked it, indicating that there was a pretty take of land attached to the inn, gave the traveller a promise of good feed for himself and his horse, which might well console him for the ignorance in which the weather-beaten sign left him as to the heraldic bearings of that ancient family, the Donnithorns. Mr. Casson, the landlord, had been for some time standing at the door with his hands in his pockets, balancing himself on his heels and toes, and looking towards a piece of unenclosed ground with a maple in the middle of it, which he knew to be the destination of certain grave-looking men and women whom he had observed passing at intervals. Mr. Casson's person was by no means of that common type which can be allowed to pass without description. On a front view, it appeared to consist, principally, of two spheres, bearing about the same relation to each other as the earth and the moon, that is to say, the lower sphere might be said, at a rough guess, to be thirteen times larger than the upper, which naturally performed the function of a mere satellite and tributary. But here the resemblance ceased, for Mr. Casson's head was not at all a melancholy-looking satellite, nor was it a spotty globe, as Milton has irreverently called the moon. On the contrary, no head and face could look more sleek and healthy, and its expression, which was chiefly confined to a pair of round and ruddy cheeks, the slight knot and interruptions forming the nose and eyes being scarcely worth mention, was one of jolly contentment, only tempered by that sense of personal dignity which usually made itself felt in his attitude and bearing. This sense of dignity, could hardly be considered excessive in a man who had been butler to the family for fifteen years, and who in his present high position was necessarily very much in contact with his inferiors. How to reconcile his dignity with the satisfaction of his curiosity by walking towards the green was the problem that Mr. Casson had been revolving in his mind for the last five minutes— but when he had partly solved it by taking his hands out of his pockets and thrusting them into the armholes of his waistcoat, by throwing his head on one side, and providing himself with an air of contemptuous indifference to whatever might fall under his notice, his thoughts were diverted by the approach of the horseman whom we lately saw pausing to have another look at our friend Adam, and who now pulled up at the door of the Donnithorne Arms.' "'Take off the bridle and give him a drink, Ostler,' said the traveller to the lad in a smock-frock, who had come out of the yard at the sound of the horse's hoofs. "'Why, what's up in your pretty village, landlord?' he continued, getting down. "'There seems to be quite a stir.' "'It's a Methodist preaching, sir. It's been out as a young woman's a-going to preach on the green,' answered Mr. Casson in a treble and wheezy voice, with a slightly mincing accent. "'Will you please to step in, sir, and tek something?' "'No, I must be getting on to Rossiter. I only want a drink for my horse. "'And what does your parson say, I wonder, to a young woman preaching just under his nose?' "'Parson Irwine, sir, doesn't live here. He lives at Broxen over the hill there.' "'The parsonage here's a tumble-down place, sir. Not fit for gentry to live in. He comes here to preach of a Sunday afternoon, sir, and he puts up his hoss here. It's a grey cob, sir, and he sets great store-bite.' "'He's always put up his hoss here, sir, ever since before I had the Donathorn arms.' "'I'm not this countryman, you may tell by my tongue, sir.' They're curious talkers in this country, sir. The gentry's hard work to understand them. I was brought up among the gentry, sir, and got the turn of their tongue when I was a by. Why, what do you think the folks here says for haven't you? The gentry, you know, says haven't you. Well, the people about here says han ye. It's what they call the dialect as is spoke here about, sir. "'That's what I've heard, Squire Donnithorne say many a time. It's the dialect,' says he.' "'Aye, aye,' said the stranger, smiling. "'I know it very well. But you've not got many Methodists about here, surely, in this agricultural spot? I should have thought there would be hardly such a thing as a Methodist to be found about here. You're all farmers, aren't you?' The Methodists can seldom lay much hold on them. "'Why, sir, there's a pretty lot of workmen round about, sir. There's Mr. Burge, as owns the timber-yard over there. He undertakes a good bit of building and repairs.' "'And there's the stone-pits not far off. There's plenty of emply i' this countryside, sir. "'And there's a fine batch of Methodists at Treadleson.' "'That's the market-town about three mile off. "'You may be ha' come through it, sir. "'There's pretty nigh a score of em on the green now, as come from there. "'That's where our people gets it from, "'though there's only two men of em in all Hazelup. "'That's Will Maskery, the wheelwright, and Seth Bede, "'a young man as works at the carpenterin. "'The preacher comes from Treddleston, then, does she?' Nay, sir, she comes out o' Shire, pretty nigh thirty mile off, but she's a visitin' here about at mester Poysers at the Hall Farm. It's them barns and big walnut trees right away to the left, sir. She's own niece to Poysers' wife, and they'll be fine and vexed at her for making a fool of herself in that way. But I've heerd as there's no hold in these Methodists. "'when the maggots once get i their head. "'Many of em go stark staring mad with their religion. "'Though this young woman's quiet enough to look at, "'by what I can make out, I've not seen her myself.' "'Well, I wish I had time to wait and see her, "'but I must get on. "'I've been out of my way for the last twenty minutes "'to have a look at that place in the valley. "'It's Squire Donathorn's, I suppose.' "'Yes, sir, that's Donnithorne Chase, that is. "'Fine hawks there, isn't there, sir? "'I should know what it is, sir, for I've lived Butler there a fifteen year. "'It's Captain Donnithorne, as is there, sir, Squire Donnithorne's grandson. "'He'll be coming of age this a-harvest, sir, and we shall have fine doings. "'He owns all the land about here, sir, Squire Donnithorne does.' "'Well, it's a pretty spot, whoever may own it,' said the traveller, mounting his horse. "'And one meets some fine strapping fellows about, too. "'I met as fine a young fellow as ever I saw in my life about half an hour ago before I came up the hill. "'A carpenter, a tall, broad-shouldered fellow, with black hair and black eyes, "'marching along like a soldier. "'We want such fellows as he to lick the French.' "'Aye, sir, that's Adam Bede, that is. I'll be bound. Fias Bede's son, everybody knows him hereabout. "'He's an uncommon, clever, steady fellow, and wonderful strong. "'Lord bless you, sir, if you'd excuse me for saying so, "'he can walk forty mile a day, and lift a matter of sixty stone. "'He's an uncommon favourite with the gentry, sir.' "'Captain Donnithorne and Parson Irwine makes a fine fuss him, "'But he's a little lifted up and peppery-like.' "'Well, good evening to you, landlord. I must get on.' "'Your servant, sir. Good evening.' The traveller put his horse into a quick walk up the village. But when he approached the green, the beauty of the view that lay on his right hand the singular contrast presented by the groups of villagers with the knot of methodists near the maple and perhaps yet more curiosity to see the young female preacher proved too much for his anxiety to get to the end of his journey and he paused the green lay at the extremity of the village and from it the road branched off in two directions one leading farther up the hill by the church, and the other winding gently down towards the valley. On the side of the green that led towards the church, the broken line of thatched cottages was continued, nearly to the churchyard gate, but on the opposite, northwestern side, there was nothing to obstruct the view of gently swelling meadow and wooded valley and dark masses of distant hill. That rich, undulating district of Loamshire, to which Hayslip belonged, lies close to a grim outskirt of Stonyshire, overlooked by its barren hills, as a pretty blooming sister may sometimes be seen linked in the arm of a rugged, tall, swarthy brother, and in two or three hours' ride the traveller might exchange a bleak, treeless region, intersected by lines of cold grey stone, for one where his road wound under the shelter of woods, or upswelling hills muffled with hedgerows and long meadow-grass and thick corn, and where, at every turn, he came upon some fine old country-seat, nestled in the valley, or crowning the slope, some homestead with its long length of barn and its cluster of golden ricks, some grey steeple, looking out from a pretty confusion of trees and thatch, and dark-red tiles. It was just such a picture as this last that Hazelop Church had made to the traveller as he began to mount the gentle slope leading to its pleasant uplands, and now from his station near the green he had before him in one view nearly all the other typical features of this pleasant land. High up against the horizon, were the huge conical masses of hill like giant mounds intended to fortify this region of corn and grass against the keen and hungry winds of the north not distant enough to be clothed in purple mystery but with sombre greenish sides visibly specked with sheep whose motion was only revealed by memory not detected by sight wooed from day to day by the changing hours but responding with no change in themselves, left forever grim and sullen after the flush of morning, the winged gleams of the April noonday, the parting crimson glory of the ripening summer sun. And directly below them the eye rested on a more advanced line of hanging woods, divided by bright patches of pasture, or furrowed crops and not yet deepened into the uniform leafy curtains of high summer but still showing the warm tints of the young oak and the tender green of the ash and lime then came the valley where the woods grew thicker as if they had rolled down and hurried together from the patches left smooth on the slope that they might take the better care of the tall mansion which lifted its parapets and sent its faint blue summer smoke among them. Doubtless, there was a large sweep of park, and a broad glassy pool in front of that mansion, but the swelling slope of meadow would not let our traveller see them from the village green. He saw instead a foreground which was just as lovely— the level sunlight lying like transparent gold among the gently curving stems of the feathered grass and the tall red sorrel, and the white ambles of the hemlocks lining the bushy hedgerows. It was that moment in summer when the sound of the scythe being whetted makes us cast more lingering looks at the flower-sprinkled tresses of the meadows. He might have seen other beauties in the landscape if he had turned a little in his saddle and looked eastward, beyond Jonathan Burger's pasture and woodyard, towards the green cornfields and walnut trees of the hall farm. But apparently there was more interest for him in the living groups close at hand. Every generation in the village was there, from old Feather Taft in his brown worsted nightcap, who was bent nearly double, but seemed tough enough to keep on his legs a long while leaning on his short stick, down to the babies, with their little round heads lolling forward in quilted linen caps. Now and then there was a new arrival, perhaps a slouching labourer, who, having eaten his supper, came out to look at the unusual scene with a slow, bovine gaze willing to hear what anyone had to say in explanation of it, but by no means excited enough to ask a question. But all took care not to join the Methodists on the green, and identify themselves in that way with the expectant audience, for there was not one of them that would not have disclaimed the imputation of having come out to hear the preacher-woman. They had only come out to see what were going on like. The men were chiefly gathered in the neighbourhood of the blacksmith's shop, but do not imagine them gathered in a knot. Villagers never swarm. A whisper is unknown among them, and they seem almost as incapable of an undertone as a cow or a stag. Your true rustic turns his back on his interlocutor, throwing a question over his shoulder as if he meant to run away from the answer. "'and walking a step or two farther off when the interest of the dialogue culminates. "'So the group in the vicinity of the blacksmith's door was by no means a close one, "'and formed no screen in front of Chad Cranage, the blacksmith himself, "'who stood with his black, brawny arms folded, leaning against the doorpost, "'and occasionally sending forth a bellowing laugh at his own jokes.' giving them a marked preference over the sarcasms of wiry Ben, who had renounced the pleasures of the holly-bush for the sake of seeing life under a new form. But both styles of wit were treated with equal contempt by Mr. Joshua Rann. Mr. Rann's leathern apron and subdued griminess can leave no one in any doubt that he is the village shoemaker, the thrusting out of his chin and stomach, and the twirling of his thumbs are more subtle indications intended to prepare unwary strangers for the discovery that they are in the presence of the parish clerk. Old Joshua, as he is irreverently called by his neighbors, is in a state of simmering indignation, but he has not yet opened his lips except to say in a resounding bass undertone, like the tuning of a violoncello, Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endureth forever, and Og, the king of Basan, for his mercy endureth forever. A quotation which may seem to have slight bearing on the present occasion, but, as with every other anomaly, adequate knowledge will show it to be a natural sequence. Mr. Ran was inwardly maintaining the dignity of the church in the face of this scandalous eruption of Methodism, and as that dignity was bound up with his own sonorous utterance of the responses, his argument naturally suggested a quotation from the psalm he had read the last Sunday afternoon. The stronger curiosity of the women had drawn them quite to the edge of the green, where they could examine more closely the Quaker-like costume and odd deportment of the female Methodists. Underneath the maple there was a small cart, which had been brought from the wheelwrights to serve as a pulpit, and round this a couple of benches and a few chairs had been placed. Some of the Methodists were resting on these with their eyes closed, as if wrapped in prayer or meditation. Others chose to continue standing, and had turned their faces towards the villagers with a look of melancholy compassion, which was highly amusing to Bessie Cranage, the blacksmith's buxom daughter, known to her neighbours as Chad's Bess, who wondered why the folks were a-making faces at that'n's. Chads Bess was the object of peculiar compassion, because her hair being turned back under a cap which was set at the top of her head, exposed to view an ornament of which she was much prouder than of her red cheeks, namely a pair of large, round earrings with false garnets in them, ornaments condemned not only by the Methodists, but by her own cousin and namesake Timothy's Bess, who with much cousinly feeling often wished them earrings might come to good. Timothy's Bess, though retaining her maiden appellation among her familiars, had long been the wife of Sandy Jim, and possessed a handsome set of matronly jewels, of which it is enough to mention the heavy baby she was rocking in her arms and the sturdy fellow of five in knee-breeches and red legs, who had a rusty milk-can round his neck by way of drum, and was very carefully avoided by Chad's small terrier. This young olive-branch, notorious under the name of Timothy's Bess's Ben, being of an inquiring disposition, unchecked by any false modesty, had advanced beyond the group of women and children and was walking round the Methodists, looking up in their faces with his mouth wide open, and beating his stick against the milk-can by way of musical accompaniment. But one of the elderly women, bending down to take him by the shoulder with an air of grave remonstrance, Timothy's Bess's Ben, first kicked out vigorously, then took to his heels and sought refuge behind his father's legs. "'You gallows, young dog!' said Sandy Jim, with some paternal pride. "'If ye dunna keep that stick quite, I'll take it from ye. "'What do ye mean by kicking folks? "'Here, give him here to me, Jim,' said Chad Cranage. "'I'll tie hears up, and shoe him as I do the hosses.' "'Well, Mester Casson,' he continued, "'as that personage sauntered up towards the group of men.' "'How are ye tonight? Are ye come to help groon?' "'They say folks as groon when they're hearkening to the Methodies, as if they were bad o' the inside. I mean to groon as loud as your cow did the other night, and then the preacher'll think I'm in the right way.' "'I'd advise you not to be up to no nonsense, Chad,' said Mr. Casson, with some dignity, Poyser wouldn't like to hear as his wife's niece was treated any ways disrespectful, for all he mayn't be fond of her taking on herself to preach. Aye, and she's a pleasant lookin' too, said Wiry Ben. I'll stick up for the pretty women preachin'. I know they'd persuade me over a deal sooner nor th ugly men. I shouldn't a wonder if I turned methody before the night's out and begin to court the preacher like seth Bede. why seth's looking rather too high i should think said mr Cusson. this woman's kin wouldn't like her to demean herself to a common carpenter "Choo," said ben with a long treble intonation what's folks kin got to do it not a chip poiser's wife May turn her nose up, and forget bygones, But this Dinah Morris, they tell me, Is as poor as ever she was, Works at a mill, and's much ado to keep us then. A strapping young carpenter, As is a ready-made methody like Seth, Wouldn't be a bad match for her. Why, poise make as big a fuss we hadn't bead As if he were a nevy of their own. Idle talk. Idle talk, said Mr. Joshua Rann. Adam and Seth's two men. You wouldna fit them two with the same last? Maybe, said Wiry Ben contemptuously. But Seth's the lad for me, though he were a methody twice o'er. I'm fair beat with Seth, for I've been teasing him ever since we've been working together and he bears me no more malice nor a lamb. And he's a stout-hearted feller too, for when we saw the old tree-all afire a-coming across the fields one night, and we thought as it were a bogey, Seth made no more ado, but he up to it as bold as a constable. Why, there he comes, out of will masqueries, and there's will hisself looking as meek as if he couldna knock a nail o the head for fear o nurtin' it and there's the pretty preacher woman my eye she's got her bonnet off i mun go a bit nearer several of the men followed ben's lead and the traveller pushed his horse on to the green as dinah walked rather quickly and in advance of her companions towards the cart under the maple-tree. While she was near Seth's tall figure she looked short, but when she had mounted the cart, and was away from all comparison, she seemed above the middle height of woman, though in reality she did not exceed it, an effect which was due to the slimness of her figure, and the simple line of her black stuffed dress." The stranger was struck with surprise as he saw her approach and mount the cart. Surprise not so much at the feminine delicacy of her appearance as at the total absence of self-consciousness in her demeanour. He had made up his mind to see her advance with a measured step and a demure solemnity of countenance. He had felt sure that her face would be mantled with the smile of conscious saintship or else charged with denunciatory bitterness. He knew but two types of Methodist, the ecstatic and the bilious. But Dinah walked as simply as if she were going to market, and seemed as unconscious of her outward appearance as a little boy. There was no blush, no tremulousness, which said, "'I know you think me a pretty woman too young to preach.' no casting up or down of the eyelids, no compression of the lips, no attitude of the arms that said, "'But you must think of me as a saint.' She held no book in her ungloved hands, but let them hang down lightly crossed before her, as she stood and turned her grey eyes on the people. There was no keenness in the eyes— they seemed rather to be shedding love than making observations. They had the liquid look which tells that the mind is full of what it has to give out, rather than impressed by external objects. She stood with her left hand towards the descending sun, and leafy boughs screened her from its rays, but in this sober light, the delicate colouring of her face, seemed to gather a calm vividness, like flowers at evening. It was a small oval face, of a uniform transparent whiteness, with an egg-like line of cheek and chin, a full but firm mouth, a delicate nostril, and a low perpendicular brow, surmounted by a rising arch of parting between smooth locks of pale reddish hair. The hair was drawn straight back behind the ears, and covered, except for an inch or two above the brow, by a net Quaker cap. The eyebrows, of the same colour as her hair, were perfectly horizontal and firmly penciled. The eyelashes, though no darker, were long and abundant. Nothing was left blurred or unfinished. "'It was one of those faces that made one think "'of white flowers with light touches of colour on their pure petals. "'The eyes had no peculiar beauty beyond that of expression. "'They looked so simple, so candid, so gravely loving, "'that no accusing scowl, no light sneer "'could help melting away before their glance. "'Joshua Ran gave a long cough,' as if he were clearing his throat in order to come to a new understanding with himself. Chad Cranage lifted up his leather skull cup and scratched his head, and Wiry Ben wondered how Seth had the pluck to think of courting her. "'A sweet woman,' the stranger said to himself. "'But surely nature never meant her for a preacher.' Perhaps he was one of those who think that nature has theatrical properties, and with the considerate view of facilitating art and psychology, makes up her characters, so that there may be no mistake about them. But Dinah began to speak. End of chapter two, part one. Recording by Tom Denham.